Today, I speak with Karis Afoko, co-founder of We Level Up, and we discuss feminism, class, race. It's a fantastic conversation, and she's a brilliant person. So without further ado, we're just going to get stuck in to the sizzle. So I'm here with Karis, and we're in a lovely room, kind of overlooking uh, some of the London sites. I can see Canary Wharf, actually. Um, that way. What's that? Is that the shard? Yeah, so we've got a nice view. We've got everything, the panorama. And we're just waiting for the kind of waft of tech bro to leave the room. (laughs) It's a strong strong smell. And um, we were just talking off, I almost said off camera, but there are no cameras, off mic. Audio. Yeah, pre-recording about how we relax and decompression. And you just mentioned a book group. I used to be part of a book group, ah. and then I left teaching and kind of wasn't allowed to be in it anymore, and so haven't ever been in a book group since. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your book group. Oh, well, mine's, I don't know, it's pretty new. We've been, it's a really good book group. It's a feminist book group, because I, I don't know how to not work. Um, yeah, no, it's good. It's uh, people who I wasn't that good friends with, but kind of wanted to be better friends with, and some of them started a book group, and there are seven of us, mm-hmm. and we meet every month. And um, we do alternate between fiction and non-fiction. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's really nice. It's um, I haven't been in a book group before. I guess this one's been going on for nearly a year. It's just oh, cool. like a nice, yeah, it's nice kind of, it's a good way to get to know people. And it's a good way to, for me to read non-fiction books because I don't have the attention to find normally. So, yeah. That's quite a joke. So I, shout out to Shira, I spoke to this guy called Shira, who's one of my friends, and he told me about this kind of, he called it like sin topic reading, but basically I googled that and then made up my own thing, which was like a fiction book, a non-fiction book and a psychology book, and just trying to read like a couple of pages of each a night, and that's kind of actually turned into just reading a fiction book and a non-fiction book on the go. I kind of like it because they're different. At the same time? Yeah, like I never used to get down with that, but they're, they're kind of different fields, so I quite like it. Yeah, I think my thing is I really like fiction. I really like the escapism, and I struggle. I just associate nonfiction with like school and sometimes. Mm. Boring. <laughs> yeah, but I'm actually audio books is how I've got into nonfiction generally. So I'll listen to something on like Audible that I probably wouldn't read. But my thing is a lot of nonfiction books could just be a blog post. Oof, a lot. That's a malicious thing. <laughs> No, but not all, but like a lot of ones are published now, you're just like, eh, same point, 10 chapters, naming their names. I mean, yeah, I don't, I can't <laughs> remember to name names, but I don't, but yeah, I, I agree. And, and actually, have you heard of the app Blinkist? Someone mentioned that to me the other night, actually. No, I haven't. That kind of makes you realise, yeah. like in the summarising of books, you're like, is this actually all there is in there? Like, you know, yeah. there are like seven slides or whatever it is and you don't get all of it you get the gist you know yeah actually one non-fiction book that we talked about that I do really like is um, Grit by mm. Angela Duckworth that, mm. that is a non-fiction book where I saw the point of it being long because I was like okay no, she's applying it different like I know. mean she's a great thinker as well yeah great thinker great writer just really it just completely I think this year is just one of the books that's influenced me most in terms of understanding 
yeah, I guess just having a clear, just having a framework to understand things I hadn't had before. Um, and like, you know, sometimes a book will make intuitive sense, like sort of, or a concept will make intuitive sense. And I think that, yeah, a lot of her stuff is just really make sense of a lot of things I couldn't have articulated before I read the book. So yeah, I'm into that. I mean, that's like the most glowing. Yeah, no, I'm a huge fan. Also, I don't know if she knows Cardi B, but there's a lot of parallels. <laughs> no, no, for real. I um, think Angela and Cardi. Yeah, I room. almost tweeted them, then I was like, this is weird. But um, Get Out 10 is basically the great anthem. Also another, another uh, yeah, staple of my 2018. So it's gritty. Yeah, well, the, basically, like, the... Prim- I mean, actually, I think there's a proverb that she quotes in the book, but, like, the premise of Get Out 10, 10 is, like, get knocked down nine times, get up ten times. And that is basically grit, persistence and passion, mm. perseverance and passion. You know, Cardi B's living proof. She's yeah. a pretty woman. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And so you talked about this year kind of being encapsulated by grit. Um, I feel like a big thing that's happened this year is in your work. Um, yeah. <laughs> before we get into that, um, I just want to frame how we know each other. Sure. So we know each other probably three weeks. Yeah, if yes. that. Yeah, maybe a month. Yeah, don't make it like two weeks. Um, and so we have a mutual friend, Marlon, and we're out. And you were there and we just talking. And I was like, oh my God. And so, firstly, two bits of flattery. Okay. Just to kind of. So I was going to be feedback. I was like, because <laughs> I hadn't expected, I thought it was just going to be Marlon on a date night. And I was like, who are these guys? What? And I was like, oh, I'll just be loud and they'll go away. And then, you, yeah, you're all really interesting. So. Yeah, I read that. <laughs> Defence mechanism uh, plus interesting. Um, yeah, well, so we spontaneously meet each other and we kind of end up talking throughout the evening, which is nice. And I basically got this feeling, which I've had in my adult life, every now and again, I meet people and I'm like, do you know what, yeah, you're sick. I think we're going to be friends. And the last time it happened was with this couple, Sam Navid, who do a really, they run a, a health startup. And as soon as I met them, I was like, yeah, you guys are in. in. <laughs> and, I had, and I had it with you and I was like, yeah, I rate this. And so I really like the fact we've got this turnaround. Yeah, no, I'm into it. And the second thing is, get ready, get ready. Oh. Literally, yeah. When I, I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing a, a podcast with this woman called Karis. And people were like, what, Karis? Carissa Foco. I was like, I just left the pause and they were like, oh, she's really cool, you know. That's nice. So apparently social media is on point. In Great, terms okay. Of... Well, I mean, it's good to know I'm cool. I don't feel particularly cool, but you know, that's what we're all aspiring to, right? Mm. Other people's validation. So yeah, no, that's nice. Um, yeah, I had a similar thing of just not being predisposed to uh, like any of you guys, but then being a huge fan. Um, yeah, and I think... I'm in my 30s. I think it's rare to meet people, meet new people and meet new people you like. So I think, yeah, it was a nice special evening, you know. Even though I had to share Marlon. Yeah, I, well, even though I had to share Marlon. Yeah, but you had arranged to meet Marlon, so it's different. That is true. <laughs> we had a date. Yeah, we had a date. and we had the power of spontaneity. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was good. And I think also it's been, it's been good for me. It's been, this has been a weird year. It was a good reminder of kind of, you sort of get stuck in your I don't know you just get kind of stuck in the life that you're leading and like the friends that you've got and just it was a good reminder of like actually there are other people you could be friends with mm. there are like 
you feel like you close your life off, maybe, I think, as you get older, like, late 20s and 30s, you're like, oh, this is kind of done, this is done. And actually being like, no, nothing's done. You can meet new people, you can, like, have new experiences. Mm. Yeah, so it was a good evening. I'm glad that we met. I read that, and I think, for me, there are a few themes to that evening in terms of that conversation, which I really were like, okay, I would love to talk more about this. And Mm -hmm. what better way to do that than, like, to record it in a slightly (laughs) bio-filled room? Yeah, than to record it and, yeah, have a very natural, but also microphone during conversation. I'm into it. Get me. What's the themes? The themes... So I kind of feel like I take a psychological lens with me that's Mm. just... It's in my head. And I feel like when we were talking... Joshua is also there, brings a philosophical lens with him yeah. everywhere. And I felt like you were bringing what I consider to be a sociological lens. Um, so that was the first thing I was like, huh, this is an interesting way of, of like diversifying the conversation. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was your work. I, I was like, huh, okay, I don't know that much about this area, but I also feel like intuitively um, into it. So I kind of wanted to hear about that. I feel like there was a third thing. The third thing, yeah, gentrification. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. That was the third thing. Oh, yeah. Gentrification. Gentrification. Um, yeah, okay. So what it's been a big we... year. I feel like the most, like, salient thing is mm. work. I feel like that's kind For of like... For me? Yeah. Well, as in, like, right now, you were, like... Yeah, well, I think a big... I think, well, we're in my office, as context. Um, yeah, well, I think work is... That's probably the... Has been the biggest ongoing thing for me in 2018 because I started an organisation, although we actually, I mean, the idea for it had been around for a while, but we launched it in January and I quit my job a year ago um, without any money to pay myself <laughs> to do it. So that is probably, that's probably been the like biggest thing on my plate this year and the biggest area of focus mm. and also has been really rewarding and like quite a big success so far. Um, we still, you know, fundraising uh, to exist next year. Um, plug, and plug. then, yeah. And then, should I tell you, should I talk about, do you want me to explain what I do? Do it, yeah. Yeah. But no, first, the name. But first. Okay, so the organisation is called Level Up. Best um, theme song ever. Yeah. Well, there's a, do you know what, actually, we released it before the, um, the new one. There's a Sway song called Level Up. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's actually what I think of, but because I'm old Um, but yeah so it's called Level Up it's a feminist community so it's for anyone who wants to end sexism in the UK and wants to take action either in their everyday life or just sort of at a national level and yeah it's in some the way I describe it now because I spent you know two years trying to describe it to people in a few words is like Spotify for feminism Um, and I guess if anyone listening is familiar with change.org or 38 degrees then it's using a similar model of campaigning so using the internet to mobilize a lot of people um and yeah and the aim of the organization in the next three years is to become 100% crowdfunded so right now we're one third crowdfunded we launched using a GoFundMe campaign and yeah the aim is to build a big enough community that can kind of sustain itself and like fund a staff team and campaigns and all that kind of stuff and then obviously smash Patreon. Obviously. Yeah, that's end game. Great that. And then the money will go on a big fire display. Yeah, actually we do. We're very good at celebrating. So, you know, the money already goes on. Lots of, like, celebrating success as well as 
paying staff salary and campaign costs. That's great. And so I feel like, the, in fact, probably one of the first things you said to me was like, do you consider yourself a feminist? I'm sure it was, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think for me, I feel like in social sciences, it's really hard to get a consensus about what something is or the right way to view something. Mm. And so I've kind of accused you of having this sociological lens. And so I'd really like to hear a bit from you about what feminism is to you and and maybe even a bit more about it. Like, how do you think people engage with feminism? Okay, those are two big questions. So I think what feminism is to me is a belief that, well, I guess for me, I think the main thing I believe about feminism is it shouldn't be about, like, it's about having equality for all genders. And so the feminism I subscribe to isn't prescriptive, just because I think the last thing women need, people need, is people telling them whether or not they're a feminist. And so... For me, feminism is about the system that decides, you know, what you wear, whether you're safe when you walk down the street, how much you get paid based on your gender or your gender identity. Mm. Um, It's basically an unjust system that makes all of us less free and less happy. Um, And so for me, being a feminist is about saying... Everyone has the right to, you know, an equal shot of happiness. And right now we have a lot of systems and structures that disadvantage mostly women, but not only women. Um, and, yeah, that, that should change. But the, I guess my feminism is very rooted in the fact that we're only going to change the system with collective action. Um, and that me getting a pay rise isn't actually leading towards ending sexism. Mm. Although, you know, everyone likes a pay rise. Yeah. Um, it's a metric of success, you know. It is. And as a black woman and a woman that grew up working class and, uh, you know, someone who, and like, I think it's also as someone who doesn't benefit from a lot of the systems that are in place in the UK, I'm very conscious that without a collective, basically we're not, one of us can't be free, we all have to be free and none of us are free. And actually what's quite key to level up is understanding that sexism disadvantages boys and girls, it disadvantages you if you're trans, it disadvantages you if you're, like it's telling someone like who they are or how they should feel or how they should act based on what you perceive their gender to be is just putting everyone in the prison, putting everyone in the box. And so whilst, you know, I believe that some people kind of suffer more or like have the real thin end of that wedge I don't think it's a particularly healthy society where men are told they can't cry from a very young age and that certain feelings are like allowed depending on your identity and certain ones aren't so if you're a white woman it's fine to cry if you're a black man like you should never cry and I think that whilst you know, we know we lose two women a week to domestic violence. We know that women in the UK are, you know, significantly and consistently less than men at work. We know that if, you know, we know that sort of that <laughs> the system disadvantages women more than men. 
and actually the point of level up and you know the point of the name is that it disadvantages all of us um and that it's in all of our interest to end sexism it's in all of our interest to dismantle patriarchy I don't mean like language like that because I think it's very accessible but um yeah I guess that's what feminism is to me and an important part of my feminism is understanding that we all have different experiences of sexism and so I'm interested in working with and campaigning with any feminist that agrees with me that one of us can't be free until we're all free Mm. and I'm not very interested in policing other people's feminism Mm. as long as it's respectful of other people and respectful of difference then I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, you can't be a feminist and vote conservative. You can't be a feminist and like believe this or believe that. I just not convinced it's particularly useful. And maybe that's the sociological lens. I guess I think I bring a political lens to a lot of things. So I'm not really interested in abstract. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in concrete change. I'm interested in will something be better for someone that I care about tomorrow mm. um, rather than sort of abstract Oh, wow. You use this word or this word. Well, like, theoretically, I mean, we've had this a lot because we're doing work around the, doing a campaign around the Gender Recognition Act. Mm. And I think a lot of arguments and discussions I've had with people have been around not being able to engage with the debate because of not understanding different theoretical concepts or seeing inconsistencies in what they can in you know gender theory so saying well that can't be true because of this or mm. I don't understand how I don't understand trans and non-binary people are saying different things or and I think it's just I've had a lot of arguments in my family actually about this stuff for quite a while and it's so interesting because it's just not how I approach it I have trans friends and I hate that they get treated like shit and that's all I care about really like not to say that I can't have a conversation about theory but and especially in the case of the Gender Recognition Act, where we're looking at a very small but very powerful change for people whose lives are already quite hard, I just have very limited time for those conversations yeah. because for me, they're often people who don't have skin in the game and do have a lot of privilege. So then you're just like, well, great. I mean, write a thesis, but people are dying, like people are struggling, people are getting abused on the street. And yeah, I don't know, is that sociological? Whatever lens that is, I guess that's the lens I bring to everything and the lens that... I bring to level up and how I want us to organise, which is kind of practically in a way that can reach a lot of people, using words that can reach a lot of people, and just based on our everyday lives and experiences, not a sort of abstract, in 20 years' time, this could happen if we follow this to its logical conclusion. And actually, like, you know, I don't know how much of what you just said is, like, you know, the elevator pitch or, or, you know... Oh, no, none of it, yeah, no. But (laughs) what really struck me about it was, like... You, you know, using words like happiness and practicality mm-hmm. like that, I really rate that because I completely, I resonate with or it resonated with me when you're talking about like, oh, it's easy to get stuck in a philosophical like, let's dig into the minutiae of like, mm-hmm. you know, the epistemology and it's like actually, can we just Occam's razor this shit and be like, can we make it better for someone? Yeah. Like, psychologically, uh, bringing out that lens, um, you know, looking at the the consultation around the Gender Recognition Act, Mm. you know, even the fact that at the moment as it stands, the act requires someone to have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, I'm like, that just, it like, it really reminds me of like, old school psychology, where unfortunately, 
homosexuality used to be a diagnosis and it's like oh are we still there you know like it and I think psychology is such a broad church but like you know it kind of made me a bit embarrassed like oh are we really there like still yeah Um, and so you know like in terms of talking about small changes that's a tiny change Mm. oh someone shouldn't have to have a diagnosis in order to be able to legally change their gender seems like such a minor you know, yeah, like, no, and it is. I think the problem is that debate has been very sidelined by people's emotional reaction to politics of gender. Mm. I actually, I mean, yeah, the elevator pitch. I think also for me, it's very personal about how I grew up in my life experience, and I associate those kind of academic, long word arguments with people telling me my experience isn't valid. Mm. And so, especially like going to university and going to a good university, and you know, reading textbooks that are racist, like reading and having to be and trying to and like finding that use it the language words like epistemology or things were used to silence me and tell me what I knew was true wasn't true. And I think that is also about how I view level up and the kind of community I want it to be. I, I think that feminism in the UK is really exciting and dynamic and vibrant and I think it speaks to a specific set of people and what we are trying to do is build a community that is inclusive. Um, of different experiences and that includes not everyone that went to university not everyone that is white and middle class not everyone that's read Bell Hooks or Audre Lorde Um, and you know I grew up in a feminist household my mum had like Angela Davis books and things on the bookshelf and plenty of the people I went to school with might not use the word feminist about themselves even though they are feminists and I think that that is a problem Um, thankfully Beyonce as you know But I think it's also sort of understanding that uh, language and academic approaches are used to shut people out, Um, and I just don't see that benefiting people like me. Yeah. What did you mean? You kind of said something that's quite interesting around like people using academic language to tell you your experience wasn't valid. valid. What, what, What were you thinking of? Uh, oh, well, specifically just studying economics and studying um, development economics and reading textbooks and being like, this is racist, and then being told, well, no. Well, I'm not even sure if I was told it wasn't racist. I think I was just told it wasn't relevant. But I think, you know, you read books that are only by old posh white guys, and the whole reading list is, you know, a certain set of experiences. And my dad's from Ghana. By the time I got to university, I'd been going to Ghana a lot in the summer. So it's, it's a weird thing reading about your heritage and your community as if people are animals in a zoo and it's even weirder knowing that or having the experience of challenging things and then being told well no and I work for the World Bank so you're wrong and I think that that I've tried to think about why because we had uh, and with your friend like quite a lot of long conversations about like I've always found philosophy very alienating just because I'm like I don't understand how it's relevant I don't understand how it applies to people's lives and I think that sense of a lot of academia and a lot of academic approaches are used to tell, uh, are used by middle class people to tell working class people that they're wrong or they're stupid. Mm. And I saw that a lot and have seen that a lot around the Brexit debate, which again I find very alienating. And yeah, I guess it's weird. I'm middle class now. I'm very lucky to sort of have more money than I did growing up. And it's great, by the way. John Lewis is a good thing. <laughs> um, but also, you know, the people are, like, I'm also just conscious of like, I'm not better or smarter or harder working than a lot of the people I went to school with. I went, I had a specific 
skill set which enabled me to go to a specific type of university mm. which opened jobs up to me that mm. other people hadn't now open to them so I do find it interesting when sort of people will and this is what I mean about like academic debates and like long reads and people talk about Brexit and there's an implicit narrative of like well you know poor people are stupid and racist and it's like interesting I mean so number one a lot of poor people aren't white so I'm not sure how you got to all poor people are racist number two not using long words doesn't make you stupid um, and that's why actually, quite the opposite. Yeah, and that's I mean, actually that's a big part of how I write and a big part of how we approach things. It's just that if you need, you're actually hiding behind the words. Like if you can't use plain English, if you can't make something comprehensible to someone who didn't go to university or even someone who's like 12 years old, then yeah. do you really understand what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, not to knock any of the great feminist theorists, and I also think a lot of the things I came to some of them later in life and I was reading you know, people at Bell Hooks and being like, this is so exciting. And also, this is something that I have known. Like, this is something I've experienced. And it's important to me we build a community where that experience is valid and it doesn't have to be valid by a book or by, I don't know, or by a reading group or anything like that. Some of the best, most powerful feminists I know are people like my mum who just raised two kids and held down a job and, you know, and people who give to their community. So... And, and I think there has to be space for both, especially if we want, you know, if we're talking about a change to assist to a system and we're talking about big cultural changes and political changes and economic changes, then we need a lot of people like on the team and we need to build something that can accommodate lots of different experiences. Mm. Um, and I think when things are built for white middle class people, then they tend to just serve white middle class people. But in my experience, that isn't the case. If something is built for like black women, it typically, I think, can include more people. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'm interested in, I can't remember the original question was, but um, I think I'm interested in feminism that I think is underrepresented in the UK at the moment. And I am interested in starting conversations and campaigns from a sort of heart space and not head space. Um, Ooh, what's the difference? I think we. I think. Well, you can tell me because you're a psychologist. But I guess for me, it's like so on the gender stuff. We're neck up. It's a you? feeling. Well, no, but maybe we'll have a better way. But for me, the when I've got to the end point of a lot of the gender identity stuff, it's that I start from people and how I my instinctive feeling of like what is the injustice and like who is it that I am on the same side as and I think other people start from a like so what is gender and like how do we describe it Mm. and I think which is a sexist thing in and of itself this sense of well rational objective truth and long words and academia and that sort of stereotypically male logic and reasoning Mm. is often privileged over on a gut level I know that that's not fair on a Mm. gut level I know that that's not true Um, and I think in politics at the moment we have seen the consequence of ignoring people's emotional gut reaction to things and trying to rationalise and explain it away. And I'm much more interested in, for myself and also for just the community and the work that we're doing, in empowering people by saying, you don't have to read a fucking book about this. Because a lot of our members have trans, like, I mean, just to use that example, a lot of our members have trans family members or relatives and so they know in a day-to-day way what it is like to love someone who at the moment is told by society they're wrong and not really human. Mm. 
And interestingly, you know, 7,000 people took part in our campaign in a week. And there were people who, a lot of whom I don't think would have done the longer government consultation. And they didn't all agree. And people had, you know, a trans sister and they weren't, and they were like, hey, this is how I feel, this is how I feel about her, and I still have these questions. Mm-hmm. And for me, starting from humans rather than starting from abstract theory, I think, gets us to a more interesting place. Um, and it's just a very feminist thing, right? The person was political like that is how feminist politics has developed. And so I guess that's what I'm interested in, and that's what I mean by head and heart space, that rather than give me an abstract argument or theory as to why this is true, mm-hmm talk to me from your sort of gut instinct, your emotions and your experience. Um, And not that one is like, you need both. And I think what is lacking at the moment is people saying, you know, this is how it's for me, this is how it's for my community. Yeah, you know, I really like that. I think like, I thought about that quite a lot in my thesis because Mm. you're kind of blending research evidence with the narratives and, and evidence from the context and the people you're talking to. And, like, I, I, I kind of felt like, you know, some points of view required a microphone to be heard at the same level as, as others. And, mm. and then you can start to kind of work out the right balance between them, you know? Like, mm. I'm also reminded of a... I, th- I feel like I talk about this guy all the time, but he's called Rob Reiner... Canadian guy, he talks about um, these kind of quadrants of evidence. So one quadrant is like research evidence, but then also you've got like practitioner experience, local experience from the area, and like all of these things are part of what should help you build an understanding of like ways forward, you know? Mm. Like when I think about the current strategies that are employed, I feel like we're leaning quite heavily towards one quadrant and that's that's research evidence Mm. you know and actually like is it ever a bad thing trying to understand more about how people are feeling like that Mm. has to be everything and also research is not just I think there's just a false binary between kind of thoughts and feelings rational objective truth and then like soft lovely side I, I think there are things that are objectively true but there aren't that many and actually and I think we talked about in the context of your research that, like, I just think that this, I think that there are many ways to experience something. And if you start with people's feelings, you get to those different. And in politics, you know, like, politics isn't a science. It's a social science. But it is, it is the, it's the and culture and society are the like, sum total of our experiences mm. and our feelings. And, you know... I don't think anyone, I don't think many people that voted in the Brexit referendum were familiar with, I don't know, Norway's relationship with the European Union. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think everyone did have to read up on it. I think that people vote and people make political decisions based on emotion. But I think the political class um, like to talk a lot about logic and kind of facts and science. And I'm not saying that they aren't relevant. You can't develop good policy without having an understanding of... Mm facts and because we've privileged experts and told people that experts know more than you do and because a very narrow set of people around the country I think that one of the things we have to do to rebalance and those people don't have a broad set of experiences right so they have to rely on numbers and research they have to know what it is poor people care about because none of them are poor yeah so there's I just think that one of the things that I want level up to do I think we are doing is bringing 
people's personal experience and feelings into politics and saying like these are relevant, these are important, these are missing. And that is, and that these are powerful. Mm. Um, I don't think you change people's minds with numbers. Um, and I don't think people's, I don't think politics is really about facts. I think it's about values and yeah, feelings. So that's, maybe that's the lens I bring sociological, political, just that not that facts don't matter, but that feelings kind of are much more important than most people give credit to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think think that's really lovely. Um, I think also you made me reconsider, you know, the way that I described Brian and was like, research was this kind of other end of the dichotomy to feeling. But yeah, you're quite right. I mean, my research was not what most people consider research to be. Um, so yeah, I hear that. Um, the, the kind of second part of my question was around like, how do you think people engage with feminism? Because mm. I feel like, I feel like it's a loaded word. Yeah. And, and I don't have much to do with it apart from like my everyday life and trying to practice being like a nice person who facilitates equality. Mm. And like every now and again, when I read an article, you know, I can't say that I actively research the area and yeah. so from your point of view as someone who's in the area yeah how do you feel like people engage with feminism mm, okay that's a good question I think so I think feminism the word the f word is still a kind of polarizing word or is still so I I'm very interested in framing and how people hear things when you communicate them mm. and in general I think you should focus less on what you want to say and what you want people to hear. So it's quite important to me that you use words that can land with people and resonate. But one place where I don't always believe that is feminism. I think it's quite important to claim and like reclaim that word. Mm. I think it does switch a lot of people off. We wouldn't say anyone would need to be a feminist to be a member of Level Up, but we are proud to call ourselves a feminist community because I think that part of the backlash against feminism has been in trying to toxify that word mm. and to tell women this is what it means to be a feminist. And I think one of the nice things about the last, I mean, I you know, wasn't joking when I said, you know, I think one of the nice things about people like Beyonce claiming the word feminist, Chimamanda, DJ claiming the word feminist, is that you're, is it like it should be claimed by a lot of people, it should be contested, it doesn't belong to one set of people. Yeah. And actually, by broadening it out and like letting it be a broad, messy church, I think that's good. And I think the word feminist switches off a lot of people because it's, uh, I think for people who don't consider themselves political, it has a set a certain set of connotations. But I mean, it's hard for me to know what those are because I was raised by feminists. So yeah, um, I feel like I went through like a bit of a weird arc with my relation to the word, my relationship to the word feminism. Like I was raised by a feminist and considered myself a feminist mm-hmm. kind of from the age of probably seven, and then yeah. kind of repped that throughout but then I think in my early 20s I was a bit like I remember having a debate actually this is what like probably 10 years ago Mm -hmm. and I was like an informal debate um and I was like oh I feel like we need to change the word Mm -hmm. keep the movement but change the word because like it why like like I mean now I'm kind of fusing like current Joe and past Joe but like current Joe sitting with you and you're talking about like we need collective action. We need everyone on board to create this equality. Mm-hmm. And I think to some degree, pasture is kind of like, if we want to achieve this collective action, like, why not just change the word to, like, 
you know, equalityism or like or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but listening to you talk, it seems like actually the word is is important. Mm, I think it is to me. Um, it's not the most important thing to me is to organise with people who want the same things with me. And politics is about the art of the possible. So I'm never gonna oh. not campaign. That's I mean, I'm just quoting someone else. Um, I don't know who. But like, it's never about, it's like, it's not, I don't really care what you sign up to if you want the same thing as me, like, we'll work together and make the change. And feminism, like, I'm not willing, this is a conversation I have in the context of race as well, and it's more about my personality, but like, I'm not willing to see that word yet. And I think that, because I think that the challenge, I think the fact that the word feminism is challenging and has been like toxified by some people is because it is such a threat. And I think if you make it a blander, and I don't know, there are a lot of, you know, black women that I respect, women of colour that I respect, that call themselves womanists, and I understand that there's, they have specific reasons for that. But for me, my instinct when someone says, I... It's just like, don't get off the field. Like, this is a fight. We are we are socially constructing all of these things, like gender. And feminist is a contested term. And, like, join the contest. Don't give it up. And actually, the challenge inherent in it, the fact that people, had a 14-year-old, uh, email us saying, oh, I used to think feminists were just angry lesbians. But then I learned, da, 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 and she said, now I think, you know, just, I'm so glad to be part of the mean show. And I'm only 14. I was like, wow, you've done a lot of this. Is, this is my level. <laughs> um, but that sense of, like, I like that. Like, also, feminists, or well, my kind of feminism is challenging. It is difficult. Mm. It should provoke a reaction mm-hmm. because we're not saying, you know, we want things to be a little bit different. We're saying we want to tip the table. Like, we're saying the way that all of this works isn't fair, it isn't just, and it has to change. And that's, like, how we parent our children, how much we pay people, what, you know, you're expected to wear and how you're expected to act. Mm-hmm. And so it should be challenging, right? It should be a difficult, it should be a spiky term, and we should be willing to, like, contest it and change it and revise it. And I think that it's not that important to me that people that organise with me or people who are part of Level Up use the word feminist, but it is important that we don't just kind of give it up because it's a bit hard or difficult and yeah. I don't and you know I think there's a great history of people reclaiming words and like queer is a great say that. yeah there you go you can, you can jump off onto that <laughs> yeah I mean I suppose like to some degree it becomes like your water mark what, mm. like, what I mean water level, water level benchmark yeah. something like that know, something, something. It be- but it becomes it becomes your your sign of when things have started to change when actually that word changes hands or people yeah. change their perceptions of it. Um, I want like you, you were talking about um toxified. Yeah. What do you mean what do you mean by that in terms of the word? Well I think for some people the word feminist is toxic. I went to Thanksgiving meal last year where um, an American woman was talking about she's in an anti-feminist Facebook group. She hated feminists and she used to be a feminist, but now the feminists now they all want this, this and this. Um, and I think it is a deliberate thing to make feminism unattractive and to like mm-hmm. demonise women that are feminists. Or there's a really good Sarah Ahmed has a thing about feminist killjoy. Um, you know, with the fun police, we ruin everything. Or obviously, the more homophobic feminists are like you know, butch lesbians. Um, and that is about the threat that is inherent in women's anger, women organising. Um, 
And so the way that people try to police that is to sort of, is to toxify it. Mm. Um, and I don't know. I mean, some of that stuff is changed. I think part of why I like the word feminism is it has evolved and changed so much. And so I just think, why would we lose the word that has so much history in it and tells us so much about our movement? Um, yeah, I don't know. You just reminded me of something. This is wacky. And I mean, this yeah. is, this is me. like, <laughs> this is, um, this is going back to conversations I had with my mum, like mm-hmm. young, young, young Joe. But um, I, I remember distinctly, and I mean, my memory is not good enough to remember the context, which makes us even stranger. But she's talking about power dynamics and um, the way in which, so these are kind of her words, like the way in which she thought that men were scared of women. Mm. And she kind of brought that back to essentially like a psychodynamic place. Mm. And she kind of summarised that thusly, um, that when a man is sexually aroused, you can tell. And when a woman is sexually aroused, it's a lot harder to tell. Mm. And so there's this fundamental kind of imbalance of power. Mm. And so her kind of her thoughts were, as a result of that, men were kind of constantly trying to kind of keep the initiative to redress that that kind of um, sexual imbalance. Mm, such an I mean, and she's not here to talk mm, talk yeah, about like that herself. But, it, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of I hear what you mean about. Um, I think when you're talking about like uh, female anger, that's that, that's what kind of reminded yeah. me. This, this was a book group book last night. So huh, it's what is the book? Online. Rebecca Traster, Good and Mad. It's about it's only just it's about it's only just out. It's about um, revolutionary powerful women's anger. It's an American book, kind of in the context of Clinton and Women's March and Trump. And on your mum's point, I do think that a lot of the systems, unjust systems that I certainly care about are generally, it's generally, it's kind of rooted in difference and power, right? So, and there's actually a book I would recommend, fiction book, is The Power by Naomi Alderman, which is feminist sci-fi, it's good, really readable, about, this isn't a big spoiler, so women and girls wake up and they can electric shock men. So it's just like suddenly the whole, the, you know, it's like, it's a good, it's an interesting yeah. book. It's like the idea of, oh, well, men are physically stronger than women in general. Yeah. And then one day every girl physics. hits puberty and can suddenly electrically shock them out. <laughs> it's really, oh my God, it's, there's a bit of kind of like feminist pool. And then there we go, like, yeah, zap them. Um, but it's that concept oh of well, what happens when the power dynamics are reversed. And also, which is something I'm really interested in, in the context of race and class and gender, you are not a better person because you are disadvantaged by a system. Like power is like power and power and the need to have power over people to feel okay, to feel strong Mm. is the main problem with sexism and racism and all of the isms is that like rather than being, which I think maybe connects to sort of the stuff you know more about than me, that rather than kind of being enough on your own and happy in yourself you in some way need to dominate or punish which I guess connects with the stuff your mum is was talking about about to feel powerful you have to sort of be more powerful than someone else yeah and that is pretty inherent to sexism right yeah um that yeah this sort of and that is encouraged by at least you know my experience of British society that like because women are a threat or they are different they need to be controlled and managed and dominated. Mm-hmm. And, and not just women, also non-binding people. Um, that, that difference is scary and that you manage that fear by 
hurting or like punishing or kind of disadvantaging. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, like, I, I feel like I think this phrase quite a lot um, and it's around the fact that we've kind of got to this interesting point in history or evolution where we have the cognitive resources to question our, like, impulses and, like, natural impulses. Um, so, you know, if someone annoys you, you don't just lash out and hit them. Mm. Tens of thousands of years ago, that might have been different. Yeah. But we've kind of reached this point where we're like, you know, we're now engaging our brain to think about, you know, is this nice? Let me empathize. Let me think about, you know, and obviously yeah. the kind of social norms will kind of color that to some degree. But I feel like we're kind of just working out how much stuff are we going to let into the box of let's consider this and see if it's like, mm-hmm. all right, you know, so mm-hmm. I suppose from my point of view, um, you know, gender norms would be a great one, right? It's kind yeah. of like, surely we've kind of reached the point where we can engage our, like, yeah. our, our, our cognitive power and be like, but maybe we should just let people grow up with personalities, yeah. you know? And like, also modern gender norms didn't exist. Like, like, And also we are told that the way things are is how they've always been, but actually, mm-hmm. you know, race was invented in the last couple of hundred years. Gender, as we understand it, in the UK and the West was invented in the last couple of hundred years. That's interesting. When before we were, before we had private property, marriage was not a thing. And in a lot of societies and cultures, that like monogamy and the way it's constructed, like it's very much a fun. We're told this is innate, and actually, it was just a very practical response to people becoming hunter gatherers, people wanting a plot of land. Mm-hmm. So I think there's also this thing of like gender norms are constantly changing, and you know. And obviously, well, for me personally, you know, understanding race and class because they're personal to my experience. Also, understanding that five hundred years ago, white wasn't a thing, or even that like fifty years ago, people there are people who were considered white that are people who weren't considered white that are now considered white. You know, like that sort of all of these things are made up and socially constructed, and that is why we should deconstruct them. Mm. Um, and normally, it's a function of some economic thing that makes sense. I would love a timeline, and maybe someone's done it, but like, I would sure love a timeline. <laughs> you made me think of um, gentlemen, like the concept of being a gentleman. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, back in the day, it would be really fashionable for a man to like shed a tear at the theatre. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm out here with my emotions. Then the French started getting on their re- revolution vibe, and it's like, <laughs> no, Englishmen, we want you to be, like, calm and rational and clinical, and let's not get too yeah. emotional, and that means that you might not overthrow <laughs> the, yeah, the yeah, monarch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're so right, I haven't thought about it like that. You know, it, there are, like, trends, like, actual trends, and I, I want a timeline of trends. And also, like, you know, romance, or, like, romance, classic romance, romantic poetry was all written by men, right? So that's all men in their feelings. That's just Drake. Like, that's, like, it's not like, you know, we sort of, we are just kind of a bit overly historical about all this stuff, and race is another example, and also, like, class, like, this whole idea of women, the kind of Jane Austen, dainty, reading a book, like, that has never been working class women's experience. Well, working class women have always had to work. And so working class identities and like relationships with gender are different to middle class ones because this like stay at home you know look after the kids thing is a, is a very specific experience and I think that is part of what uh, being intersectional and inclusive as a community we can do is say actually 
this is only, you know, once we add in this, like, richer range of different understandings and experiences of gender, suddenly you, it's just much clearer that it's all a bit made up and not really based on anything. Um, and, yeah, even just also now, you know, I think that's the nice thing about having access to different cultures and having parents from different countries and different continents is you also understand that even, you know, right now around the world there are very different notion we have this sense of oh well it's a globe you know patriarchy is a global thing and what it is to be a man in Senegal what it is to be a man in the UK what it is to be a man in China is very different from the same to be a woman so I think just trying to yeah have the timeline and the history and also just a bit more of a global perspective mm. um at least I think helped me to have a sense of how much change can be achieved within our lifetimes because it's not set in stone and we all recreate gender norms and sexism every day in our relationships mm. um, and our like work. And so I just I'm pretty optimistic about our ability to change it because I don't think it's there's anything there's much that's that innate. Um, it's just kind of programming, right? It's just yeah. computers been programmed a certain way, we've just got to reprogram it. Mm. It says a non program. Yeah. No, but you know, I think I think program is an interesting analogy. Um mm. I don't want to get into that too much because my actual terminology in when it comes to computers is limited. Yeah, no, so is mine. I kind of just threw that out there to like yeah. end the point. Um, but yeah. I, think, I think we do much more with race, right? We're much more, much happier. And I, I guess I notice this a lot that when people really don't want to be racist and we really believe people can not be racist. And the word, word racist is very stigmatised who are racist like I'm not racist and then when it comes to sexism it's much lower stakes to be called sexist um you know I feel like with friends I'd be like oh mate that's a bit sexist don't say that whereas with racist like that was racist no I'm not a racist tears so I think this sense <laughs> but for me someone who you know experiences racism and sexism a lot I think it's interesting it's like well both of them are just I get I guess for me it's much easier to see how much weaker these things are than they can sometimes seem. Yeah. I mean, and if anything, sexism is a much higher ratio of the population, right? As in, like, yeah. if you're being a sexist, that's yeah. 50%, right? So 51 you're... 51, mostly, yeah. Because women tend to live longer. Man, that's a sad truth. Is it sad? I mean, it's just... It's how it is. Well, I mean, I don't know enough about this, but maybe the patriarchy is responsible for the stress levels in men and that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's another podcast, I think. <laughs> I mean, 50, yeah, I don't know. I think it's 51%, I think it's in the UK anyway. Um, but that 1% is like... Yeah, but it's huge, yeah, yeah, but it's huge. It's not a kind of... I mean, should we not care about something? Because it's a minority issue. But like, it's not a... It is, you know, being a black British person, like, we don't necessarily have the numbers that people do in America. But yeah, no, I mean, it's pretty... There's a numbers game, you know, feminism's yeah. got, it's got a lot on its side. There's a lot of people with a vested interest in things about being sexist. Mm. You mentioned pretty woman to me oh, God, on yeah. text now pretty woman. i i feel like it's a film mm-hmm. don't don't know don't know you don't know what pretty it. woman is no. oh my god okay um but you know who uh, julia roberts is yeah with the lips i mean okay yeah There's but the reason i say that roberts. the reason yeah, i say yeah, that yeah. is that whenever i've seen her in a film mm-hmm. i've always found myself like zooming in on her upper lip as in like yeah. that is how i remember her That's what you and i kind of i first no my my first my point of recall is the lip and then her okay. face and personality kind of got it, got it. fleshes out from there. Yeah. Um, so 
yeah, apologies for ignorance around Julia Roberts, but um, we were talking about a book called The Ethical Slut, and I was and I was saying that there's like this kind of, I guess, scarcity mindset around mm. like in the book love and whether there's enough love for everyone but I think at the time we were talking about like just being nice to people I don't know or compassionate or something yeah maybe. yeah so this is like a conversation way 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 yeah back yeah. back two weeks ago oh that's my yeah. um, um I haven't read the ethical slot so I'm trying to but, but I wanted to know how it linked to pretty woman okay right well I'm given I haven't read the ethical slot and don't remember I'll talk about pretty woman though so I'm really into I mean I'm 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 very in I'm into pop culture. I consume a lot of media and I watch a lot of TV that people would say is trashy. And I love Pretty Woman. I watched it probably too young, given the content of the film. And I guess also I think you know this is how actually films that are watched by millions of people are much more critical in shaping our attitudes to gender than books that are read by a few thousand. And we need films and books and all the types of culture but I guess you know one of our big campaigns this year was around Love Island and I think it was a deliberate thing to say people who families watch Love Island and more importantly millions of people watch Love Island so actually yeah. it's much more influential in shaping our attitudes to gender and relationships and dating than I don't know a really good long worthy academic blog post yeah. so Pretty Woman why do I love it um, I mean I love Julia Roberts love a good rom-com don't make them like they used to. <laughs> Pretty Woman, I think, is just an interesting... Uh... Can you start with the plot? Like, yeah, I, I don't even so, know. Julia Roberts is a sex worker um, who meets Richard Gere uh, in Hollywood, on the Hollywood Boulevard. And he's a wealthy... It's in the 80s, so he's probably like a wealthy, like, finance guy who, like, buys companies and breaks them up, you know, kind of very capitalist. Classic. She is... You know, the stunningly beautiful Julia Roberts. She's she's uh, so she's a prostitute, and they meet in a kind of. He's asking for directions. He ends up. It's, it's like a love story, and the reason that I like it, other than the fact I watched it when I was a kid, so you know, you watch those things again and again, is that it's it's actually it's weirdly feminist in that. I think it's based on Pygmalion or something like that. Like he doesn't rescue her, so like they end up having a. Sexual, they start having a sexual relationship and an economic relationship, mm. and he like hires her a week. He's broken up with his girlfriend, he's like gonna hire her for a week to like be on his arm at different functions. And spoiler alert, they end up falling in love. And he says, Look, I'll buy you an apartment, like you can just sort of live there, and we'll be like, and she's like, Well, I don't want that, like, I want an actual relationship, and you know, I want a fairy tale, I want someone that respects me, like, mm. I don't want to work for you. And the sort of culmination of their like romantic happy ever after ending is he kind of does a big dramatic romantic gesture, climbing up a building, even though he's scared of heights. And he says, What happens, you know, once he's rescued her? And she says, She rescues him right back. And it's all about, you know, he's miserable and repressed and mm. has had to have a lot of therapy about his dad. And like, I guess what I like about it is it's not about man rescuing a woman and it's about the transformative power of romantic love but just in a fun way plus I mean it's just weirdly I got a lot of life lessons from Pretty Woman which I have now interrogated and realised some of them were faulty but um, it's just her character so relatable the whole film's about her 
it's amazing and I love Pretty Woman. So yeah. is that enough? Prior, yeah. do you feel like you're up to, would you watch it now? I have spoiled it quite heavily. Yeah, but I feel like the journey of the film is... is it's just, you know, watching yeah. it for her and the soundtrack. Okay. And her getting her comeuppance on like the snooty people that like look down on her because she's just true. Yeah, that must be quite There's nice. a lot of that. And she's got a cool best friend and like, it's just, yeah, it's comfort viewing and also it's a rom-com where the man isn't rescuing the woman and the woman isn't helpless and kind of vacuous and waiting to be saved. She's got her own shit going on, you know? That's cool. Yeah. You seem to really connect with the like... Um, well, yeah, but but specifically that she kind of like gets gets it over on the people that are looking down at her and being a bit. Sneaky. Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, the main thing that I was so I was talking to a friend about the other day, and actually I've used a pretty warm gift on Twitter. Uh, had I don't know. I think there's a sense. So there's you know a lot of it is like the kind of class politics of her having to be in this high society world and people looking down on her because of how she dresses. She doesn't know the rules. And I think, and there's a point where a famous shopping scene where she needs to buy a dress for an event and goes into a high-end boutique and they basically just, like, kick her out. And they're mm. like, there's nothing here. You can't afford anything. And she can because, you know, the rich guy's giving her money. And there's a great scene where she goes on a big shopping spree to this theme of the song, Pretty Woman. Okay. And then goes back to this shop where they've treated her like shit and it's just like, oh, you guys work on commission, right? Big mistake. Big mistake and holds up all these shopping bags. It's iconic. There's a gift. I'll send it to you. And I think I lived way too much of my life expecting to have a big mistake moment with everyone I thought like disrespected me. No, I'm working on that joke. I realise that's not a good way to live your life, reacting to people who've mistreated you. Mm. And there's something kind of sweet about the idea that and yeah, again a Cardi B kind of Cardi B connection about this idea of well, there is something empowering in the moment of people disrespecting you or treating you like you're not worth much, just thinking like, well, you're wrong and I'll show you. Mm. And it's definitely not a good way to live your life, but it is a nice thing if you've maybe been someone who's experienced that a lot in your life to think, well, you're wrong. Like, you don't actually see me, not the real me, and you don't know what I'm capable of mm. and what I'm worth. And so... I'm going to go on a shopping spree and come back and rub it in your nose, rub it in your face. Maybe not, but like that sense of kind of, yeah, getting to have the last word. Um, I hear that. You know Trump has a book. Yeah, it's, yeah he has a yeah, book. Oh, he has deal. a book. <laughs> no, I mean, he has a book that he writes down, like if someone has slighted like. him. Okay, I'm not quite at that level. But I think yeah. that sense of like being judged for so many, you know, a lot of, I grew up in a single parent family in the 80s in social housing. So I knew from a very young age what everyone thought about families like mine and what we were. And areas like mine, I grew up in Brixton before it was gentrified. Um, and I'm black, my brother's black. We're both really tall. My brother's six foot five. He can't help black cabs in London. Women across the street from when he was like 10 because they thought, what, like, so being someone who's always been judged for things that you can't control and yeah. also told what kind of like upbringing you have, whether your mum is any good, whether you're any good, whether you're clever, whether you work hard. Um, sometimes the only thing you've got is the track in your head that's just like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And yeah. it's not the best thing, it's not the emotionally, most emotionally healthy thing, but like, you know, I'm proud to be the child of like, I'm proud to have grown up in a single parent family. Um, 
and I, you know, I'm really glad that it's attitudes to single moms are changing, but like they were pretty horrible when I was growing up, and conservative politicians were pretty damning at women like my mother. Mm. So, and people are still, you know, I was talking, having a long conversation about Grenfell with people, it's like, Grenfell was terrible, and it's not that surprising for people that grew up in social housing, like how badly, like that, that could happen, because, yeah. you know, I've... As a newish member of the middle class, you know, I've been in rooms with people talking about people growing up in social housing and what they think of them, and who haven't known that that was me, yeah. and that, you know. So I think maybe one of the things I connect with in Pretty Woman is, like, being the underdog or being someone that is kind of experiences a lot of prejudice and a lot of disrespect um, based on just, like, people who don't know much and don't pay much attention. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there you go. I got did a like a... Yeah, we've got deep. Um, but in like 20 I guess like 15 mm. well just before kids company closed yeah I was doing some work with uh, Yusuf and Yusuf at kids company and they came up with this activity called sticky identities mm. and basically it was quite deep but it was really powerful so you kind of wrote on these post-it notes things you identified as and then there was another phase where you wrote on these post-it notes what other people might identify you as. Mm. And then you stuck the post-it notes on your body. Mm. And we did it with Yusuf because he was uh, comfortable enough to, have to kind of demonstrate, right? And then we just thought, okay, let's imagine Yusuf um, in this room. What post-it notes are we going to take off that, you know, you might not identify him as? And then, okay, let's now imagine him on the street, what, you know, what post-it notes are going to stay on him? And, and you're quite right that, like, actually, across context, like, people place, like, a judgment or, like, an yeah. assumption on, on people. And, like, there's a weird dynamic of kind of ending up in rooms where people are, are no longer clocking certain labels that other people might have put on you. Yeah. And so suddenly you're hearing, like, behind the scenes of, of oppression that you might never have... Yeah, yeah. ironically privileged enough to experience <laughs> so then this like weird yeah weird we talked about this when we met around like passing and like what people assume or people like because of how you dress not knowing maybe that you grew up <laughs> um, oh, was the thing that we that. talked about uh, yeah no yeah and I think well it's also you know for me I'm mixed race I have a white mum and like black dad and I was not white until I went to Ghana when people called me white and I could hear even though they were saying it in on their language, like that I was white, and so I guess I have a lot of experiences of ident- my identity being very, very like very dramatically depending on where I am. Yeah, and that is a weird experience to have, and also it does eventually mean that it's quite important that you have a sense of who you are, mm. and that it isn't shaped by what people tell you or how people treat you. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think that weird thing of like being in places where we're like, oh, no one knows this thing about me, so they're mm. talking as if. So I don't, the thing thing I don't get it much of is just like I, I mean I have had it a couple of times being in a room with all white people talking about race, so that's like something I don't get much of. But otherwise, yeah, you can be in rooms where people have assumed certain things about you. Class is the one for me where mm. that's the most uh, common experience. People can't tell what my upbringing was like or how much money my hand or anything mm. like that and they'll make assumptions based on the university I went to or how I speak or what my life is like now and yeah that is interesting and weird and sometimes really upsetting and sometimes really funny yeah I hear that 
So I think we we've kind of had like a long rambling conversation yeah. in a wonderful Is that what way. You wanted? Oh yeah, that, that's that's what we're doing. <laughs> Good. Um, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, oh yeah, where can they find you? So on Twitter we are we underscore level underscore up. On Instagram we are level up UK, and mostly you can just go to www.welevelup.org and you can find out about us and our campaigns. Mm. Uh, yeah, you can find me under my name. I'm the only me. On Twitter and Instagram, There's so many themes that I would love to have your opinion and input on. Um, you can find my contact details in the show notes, the same as always. And I'm really excited to know which directions you'd like me to take this inquiry into. Um, like, like I always say, you know, this is an organic process, and it's really fantastic to get all of the feedback and comments that I do and it really helps me think about how I plan future episodes of The Sizzle. Um, It would be really brilliant if you could share the podcast with people that you think would like it and it would also really mean a lot if you subscribed or commented on wherever you get your podcasts because that will help The Sizzle grow into the future. I'll be speaking to you next episode. All right. The Sizzle.